This season of The Francis Effect is sponsored in part by Franciscan Media, seeking to spread the gospel in the spirit of St. Francis. Franciscan Media publishes books by authors like Richard Rohr, Heather King, and Ronald Rollheiser. Get 25% off your first order in the store when you use the code FRANCISFX, that's Francis, the letter F, and the letter X, at franciscanmedia.org. That's franciscanmedia.org. This season of The Francis Effect is brought to you by Liturgical Press in Collegeville, Minnesota. Liturgical Press is a trusted publisher of resources on liturgy, scripture, theology, and spirituality, evolving to serve the changing needs of the Christian church. They produce resources for pastoral leaders, teachers, engaged learners, and all readers looking for quality books on faith and culture. Lit Press books are available at your favorite book retailer and online at litpress.org. That's litpress.org. Hello and welcome to the Francis Effect Podcast. I'm David Dalt and I teach at Loyola University Chicago Institute of Pastoral Studies and I host a radio program called Things Not Seen about culture and faith. I'm here with my two good friends, Heidi Schlumpf and Father Daniel P. Haran. Heidi Schlumpf is, of course, executive editor and vice president of National Catholic Reporter, and Dan Haran is the director of the Center for Spirituality and professor of philosophy, religious studies, and theology at St. Mary's College in Notre Dame, Indiana. And I am glad to be here with you both. Father Dan, how have you been? David, Heidi, good to be with you as always. I've been well. We're at the midpoint of the semester here in Gloria South Bend, and the weather has definitely turned. I think uh, finally the climate has realized that it is, in fact, deeply fall, and it's gotten uh, chilly, which I don't mind. I like the fall weather. I think fall's my favorite season. You know, things have been busy, and as a colleague of mine recently noted back to me here on campus this morning, we're not out of the pandemic by any means, but there's increasingly a greater sense of normalcy. And so that includes, for me, as our regular listeners know, the great blessing and opportunity to travel and to speak and to meet with people. And so last week I was in San Antonio at the Oblate School of Theology. Shout out to Oblate and the wonderful faculty and students there. It is truly one of the best places to do uh, graduate studies in theologies and ministry if you're interested. Great Episcopal leadership there, Archbishop Gustavo, Auxiliary Bishop Mike, uh, lots of cool folks. So I was honored to give their Vance Lecture in Systematic Theology. And I'm actually on my way. As listeners are hearing this, I should have arrived, God willing, in, in the United Kingdom. I'm giving uh, a lecture in London on Saturday. So keep an eye out on social media. I'll send information there. If you're in the London area and want to come in person, the information will be available. I believe it's also the event's going to be streamed as well. So excited to do that. And other than that, we're plugging along. Heidi, how are you? I'm great. And also fall is my favorite season. So uh, we have that in common. My husband and I got married in the fall, so our anniversary was last month, but I'm digging some of the fall weather and getting excited about Halloween. My kids are getting to that age where they're not sure if they're going to dress up, but I say you got to dress up to get the candy. So we're in discussion about possible Halloween costumes. Things are busy at the National Catholic Reporter, as they always are. We're gearing up for a busy November. The bishops' meeting is coming up, and as we'll talk about later, COP26. So lots of good things going on. How about you, David? What is your favorite season? 
So I'm also a fall person. And when people look at me, you know, I, I tend to dress in earth tones and all those sorts of things. But I, I was actually thinking to myself that I've currently had 50 Octobers in my life. And if I had my druthers, I would have 50 more because it is my favorite time of the year and my favorite month by far. I just really love it. We had a very good weekend here in the Dalt household. First of all, I went to an event at a place called The Fireplace, which is a Franciscan Sisters Formation House here in my neighborhood, and I got a chance to meet in person Sister Julia, who hosts a podcast called Messy Jesus Business, so I want to give a shout out to Sister Julia, but I also had a chance to meet uh, Brother Mike, who is in formation in The Franciscans, and a chance also to meet Sister Kathy, who's a Dominican sister, and just want to give shout outs to them and thank them for their hospitality and, and welcoming me this weekend when I was stopping by for that event. But I also want to talk about two things that happened to me this weekend with my kids because it was just awesome. My son has processing things going on that we've been noticing. And so he's, we think that he's on the spectrum. We're not entirely sure. We're getting, we're feeling that out. But engaging with him has become an important part of my weekly routines. And so on Saturday, I invited him to go with me on some errands. And we stopped by and picked up some groceries. And I had a conversation with him. And I said, you know, I noticed that when I cook food, sometimes you don't eat very much of it. And he's, yeah, it's just, and he did. He did Sometimes he doesn't like the texture. Sometimes he doesn't like the taste. And so I was like, well, if you could have any kind of food, what would you have? And so he picked out a meal for us and we picked out all the uh, ingredients for that. And then we, he and I cooked the meal together on Saturday evening. And he ended up being very proud of the fact, you know, I cooked this and he ate it and he, but it was just a really good bonding experience with my son and I. And then yesterday, my family went out for a long walk and my daughter has been having, she's 11, and she's been having these sort of shots over the bow where she will say things at dinner like, well, I don't like God very much, or God is just a big bully, or God is like Thanos. And she's been saying all these things. And so on this walk, she and I had a chance to have a really long conversation about where she is at with all of that and what she's thinking of. And her kind of notion is that from the stories that she's heard, if God is all powerful, she doesn't understand evil and she doesn't understand how God could have flooded the world and she doesn't understand why God lets all these bad things happen. And as we talked about it, I had the chance to listen and say, you can say anything you want. I'm not mad at you. And at the end of it, I was able to say, the God that you're describing is not a God that I believe in either. I had a chance to pivot the conversation and ask her, since you know that I'm a professional Christian and I do this stuff. Why do you think that I do that? Do you think that I do that because I want to serve the bullies and this kind of Thanos God? And she was like, it doesn't doesn't make any sense to me. So I had a little bit of a chance to talk to her about Jesus. And that was really cool. And this is going to be an ongoing conversation, but I felt like she had a chance to be heard and I had a chance to really listen at what her concerns were, but I also had a chance to let her know, I think eventually when she figures Jesus out, things are going to be different for her in terms of the God stuff. But also I told her that I'm in no hurry and I'm in no rush and I'm not concerned. Anyway, that might be oversharing, but I just it was a really powerful moment for me for both of my kids this weekend. And I'm just grateful to get a chance to share that with you. Thank you, David. That's, that's really neat. Very neat. And you are not alone. So a lot of us parents of teens and preteens are dealing with their tough questions. And and I, I do a lot of similar things in trying to just make it a safe space for to talk about anything, but also just sharing my own personal 
faith journey. And I think it's important just to expose our kids to other Christians who are struggling, who are living the faith, but also deal with doubts and questions too. So I'm always grateful to hear another parent's story. And so as we're moving into the episode, I just also want to give a shout out to our Patreon supporters. We have a bonus episode that we recorded a couple of weeks back when we all did a conversation together with Commonweal Magazine and the Bernadine Center at Catholic Theological Union. That'll be coming out this week as well, so be on the lookout for that. And just want to say again to anyone who's listening, thank you for listening and for supporting the show and telling your friends about it, but especially for those who have a chance to support the show financially. That helps the show stay free for everybody and helps it keep on going, so we appreciate that very much. And uh, speaking of Patreon, I know one of my best friends for most of my adult life, my roommate from college, he and his his wife have been Patreon sponsors in the past to support the show and are big fans. But today is his birthday, October 20th. So a shout out to Drew and his lovely family. Well, there you go. And so we're going to go ahead and get into the show. Thank you, Drew. And thank you to all of our supporters. Today, we're going to be talking about three topics. We're going to be talking about the Pope's address to popular movements that happened in the last couple of weeks. We're going to be talking about the recent flap over parental leave and paternity leave. And we're going to be talking about the upcoming COP26 or Conference on Parties conference happening in Glasgow, Scotland on climate change. So that's all coming up on The Francis Effect. We'll be back in just a moment. Welcome back to The Francis Effect. I'm David Dalt, and I'm here with Heidi Schlumpf and Dan Haran. Every couple of weeks, we get together to discuss a variety of topics from a perspective informed by our shared Catholic faith. Last week, Pope Francis addressed the fourth gathering of world popular movements by means of a video. This gathering is sponsored by the Vatican's Dicastery for Integral Human Development and focuses on social issues in need of engagement and response. This year's themes include shelter, work, and land. The address is one of the Pope's most animated and direct. It is powerful in its straightforwardness. Among the topics the Holy Father named were the effects of the global pandemic, including what he called the chronic anxiety that affects young people today, the issue of food inequality and scarcity in many communities, and a host of social injustices perpetuated by systems of greed and consumerism. In a haunting and challenging litany, Pope Francis calls out those responsible for profiting off pharmaceuticals, financial and investment firms, mineral extraction agencies, arms manufacturers, and technology, telecommunications, and media giants. In a strikingly personal way, the Pope called out the criticism he and other religious leaders receive when they advocate for social justice. Quote, I want to offer some guidelines. The social teaching of the church does not have all the answers, but it does have some principles that along this journey can help to concretize the answers, principles useful to Christians and non-Christians alike. It sometimes surprises me that every time I speak of these principles, some people are astonished, and then the Holy Father gets labeled with a series of epithets that are used to reduce any reflection to mere discrediting adjectives. It doesn't anger me, the Pope said. It saddens me. It is part of the post-truth plot that seeks to nullify any humanistic search for an alternative to capitalist globalization. It is part of the throwaway culture, and it is part of the technocratic paradigm, unquote. Dan, like many others, you were struck by this papal address. 
What about it is so fascinating to you and what are we to make of it? Yeah, it is fascinating. And I think the excerpt you just shared is a great highlight of this. I think in a nutshell, I would say that what's what's striking is the Holy Father's directness, his clarity, his emotion. And I guess I would put it this way, you know, the issues that plague the world, especially those who are most vulnerable, those who are most uh, marginalized, the Pope has no more patience for people who don't want to address these or take these subjects seriously. And so, you know, he's always been a vocal critic of systems of injustice, of selfishness and nationalism, xenophobia, these kinds of things that really fracture the global community and local communities. But there was something different, and I certainly wasn't the only one to pick up on this. A number of people were commenting on social media, a lot of Vatican watchers and journalists in particular and other theologians like myself were were just struck, I would say pleasantly struck. It's interesting, he begins his address by referring to those people committed to the work of social justice, of greater equality, of greater inclusion as social poets, which is very cool. And I'll just share a little bit of how he introduces uh, this theme. He says, Dear social poets, this is what I like to call you, social poets. You are social poets because you have the ability and the courage to create hope where there appears to be only waste and exclusion. Poetry means creativity, and you create hope. With your hands, you know how to shape the dignity of each person, families, and of society as a whole, with land, housing, work, care, and community. Thank you, because your dedication speaks with an authority that can refute the silent and often polite denials to which you have been subjected, or to which many of our brothers and sisters are subjected. And he goes on from there, and I think just those opening lines are really powerful, not only the image of poetry and creativity, but putting these principles into action, which is something that's really important to him, in that, you know, poetry is perhaps viewed by some as this esoteric thing that is very, you know, for the educated and it's removed from reality. And the Pope is saying, no, 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 poetry creativity, development, this is manifest in what governs and grounds the good work of the gospel. And so then he goes on to say, those of you who advocate for housing and land and food equality and these sorts of things. One last line I just want to highlight here, and I'm curious to see what what you two think about this, is a, a short line in the middle of the address, and he refers to after this litany of things that he calls out. He calls out technology, calls out pharmaceutical companies, calls out nations, wealthy nations that are selfish and closed off. He says, Referring to all of these things together, he says, this system, with its relentless logic of profit, is escaping all human control. It is time to slow the locomotive down, an out-of-control locomotive hurtling toward the abyss. There is still time. What do you two think? Well, I so as I read that social poets part, one of the, and as you were talking about it, one of the things that came to my mind was a phrase utilized by Walter Brueggemann in a lot of his writings, the notion of the prophetic imagination. And having studied with Brueggemann, you know, one of the things that he says that prophets do is that they offer a completely alternative world to the one that we're living in, one that requires imagination beyond the limits of what the current status quo offers to us. And I, I, I heard a lot of that kind of language in this address from the Pope because he's talking about trying to think beyond the limits of global capitalism and think beyond the limits of what the market is offering to us. And to me, I mean, this is my kind of language. This is why I like being a Catholic is because I occasionally get crumbs from the table like this where I I realize that, you know, the church really does want to promote the gospel, which is good news to the poor and which is good news to the captives and which is, you know, good news to an earth that will be renewed as 
Isaiah tells us. So all of this was just very bracing for me, but I heard not only Catholic resonances, but resonances that ripple across the pond into Protestant conversations as well. Well, I would just echo what you're saying, David, which is for a progressive Catholic who's interested in and compelled to work towards many of these social injustices, it's so encouraging to hear the religious leader, the top religious leader in our church saying all these things. So a number of these tweets I started seeing a little bit on Saturday, somebody joked that the pontifex needs to learn how to do a thread because it was this, he kept doing over and over all, or he, whoever his social media person is, kept doing over and over these tweets from the address and just every single one was retweetable and really inspiring to me. What I liked, too, was how he connected it then to synodality and that this is what the church needs to be about. I think when we talk about the upcoming synod on synodality, we think a lot about like internal church structures and how we need to listen to one another about that and walk together on possible reforms. But this really reaffirms how much our church needs to be an outward-facing church and really be witnessing to the world. And Dan, I wanted to ask a follow-up question to you, because there have been points in the past where Pope Francis has spoken with what I took to be very clear language about the markets and those sorts of things. And I have watched as, you know, our friends at the Acton Institute and other sorts of organizations on the Catholic right will reread the Pope and say, well, he didn't really mean that. And sometimes the bishops will do that as well. But the clarity of the language here seems almost unmistakable and unfudgeable. But I'm wondering how you read that. Do you see the, a similar clarity here? And is is this a reaction to the Pope being misread or reread in the past? Yeah, I think so. That's really astute of you, David. <laughs> and I crack up every time our friends at the Acton Institute. You know, there are two things here, and, and both of them are addressed in the text itself. The first is, this is the first address to this gathering post Fratelli Tutti. And so Pope Francis is making reference back to the encyclical of last year that is all about you know, social systems and political systems and justice in the world. I mean, it's a it's a powerful and challenging document. And he not only names it and cites it in these remarks, but he also makes allusions back to some of the key themes and tropes that he uses to express the church's teaching. So, for instance, the Lucan parable of the Good Samaritan appears again here, right? And he draws that as a metaphor for international global relations, which is, let's think about it. It's not just you know, three dudes walking down the road from Jerusalem, it's whole nations, nation states that are abandoning, you know, millions or even billions of people. And and what responsibility do we share collectively for that? And to your point, the second thing I'd highlight that struck me is that, you know, maybe if we were a little more salty mouth here, I could use some more colorful languages. But let's say the Pope has no more cares to give. He's all out of cares. And this is what we see here, for instance, when he says, he, he says midway through, he goes, and sometimes when the popes, be it myself or Benedict or John Paul II, say something, there are people who wonder, quote, where did he get it from, question mark. And then he says, it is the traditional teaching of the church. He goes on to say, there is a lot of ignorance about this. The principles I expound are in the social compendium that the Vatican put out, the Pontifical Council for Justice and Peace, some many years ago now. And he made reference to that. And he says, it was commissioned by St. John Paul II. And I recommend that you read that compendium, you and all social, trade union, religious, political, and business leaders. So to the Acton Institute in particular, he calls them out. 
and he calls out bishops who, you know, are at that wine drinking festival in California. I can't remember what it's called now. Napa Institute. Oh, I was going to call it the Sonoma Fest. Napa Institute. That's what it is. <laughs> well, I mean, in, in all lightheartedness aside, this is very serious, right? So that he is, it seems, aware that, you know, he calls out religious leaders, social leaders, political leaders, business leaders. Of course, among them are people who identify as Catholic and and even under religious leaders, bishops. So, you know, I love this line in particular because it just, it, it's like hearing, it's like, listen, if we can listen to a mirror or an echo of what we talk about very often on this podcast, which is things that get spun in right-wing media, alt-right pseudo-Catholic media and so forth as being novel, outside of the tradition, Pope Francis is a Marxist, this, that, and the other nonsense. And the Holy Father saying, look, you did the same thing to Benedict. You did the same thing to JP too. We could go back to Paul VI and John XXIII, all the way back to at least Leo XIII. And he's saying, look, this is the church's teaching. Stop it. You know, I'm the Pope. I'm not making this stuff up. I, I agree, Dan. That's what, you know, the, the Good Samaritan connection, that's one of the things I retweeted. I was really touched when he compared the protests after the killing of George Floyd to the Good Samaritan saying, that movement did not pass by when it saw the wound of human dignity struck by such an abuse of power. And I, I like the comparison that you're making or that the Pope made that He's not the first pope to say these things. And and I'm always struck when conservative Catholics, you know, think like Francis is some sort of anomaly and that we can just disregard him when, you know, there were a lot of things I didn't like or agree with when some previous popes, John Paul II or Benedict said things, but they said these kinds of things too, these critiques of capitalism, these critiques of market forces. And we're going to hear this a lot, I think in our upcoming political discourse in the United States, because some on the right in our, the United States politically have decided that this boogeyman of socialism is the, the way to win elections when your party is otherwise in shambles. And I think that it could be effective among some people who are very fearful of that. And not just right-wing people, but immigrants who come from countries where their socialism combined with dictatorships and where it was problematic. So I think it's important for us to highlight not just the Pope Francis's words here, but to connect them with the broader church teaching, as you often do, Dan. Thanks for that. Yeah, I, I agree. And you hit the nail on the head with reference to, you know, the actual consequences of that sort of rhetoric. We saw it last fall with Biden losing a significant number of the, the Latinx population, particularly in, in South Florida, where you have folks who who fled places like Cuba and they bought the spin about, well, the Democratic Party in general or, or Joe Biden in particular is a socialist and this, that and the other. And I think you're right. You see this as well in, in our ecclesial context. The other thing I'll just point out is Again, there is a, you know, thou doth protesteth too much. You know, I keep thinking back to you know, disgraced general and, and brief national security advisor Michael Flynn, who, you know, fomented this, the quote, lock her up chance at Trump rallies during the 2016 election. And within like 11 days of him being in federal office is literally <laughs> under investigation by the FBI and goes to jail. I mean, there is a deep irony here, because what I'm getting at here, that parallel is that the same, I would call them right wing. I don't even like the term conservative because people can be conservative in lots of different ways. But I would say off the scales, right wing people who are always concerned about relativism and cafeteria Catholicism and all these other boogeymen, 
they're doing the exact same thing. They're picking and choosing. The same people who want to talk about John Paul the Great are oftentimes the same people who refuse to accept his magisterial teaching on the inadmissibility of capital punishment that Benedict also emphasized and that Pope Francis has made absolutely clear. And so people pick and choose what they like. It's been interesting that around the issue, for instance, of LGBTQ persons and inherent dignity and value, how quickly the right wing is very interested in listening to the Holy Father, who I would say mistakenly or ill-advisedly uses the phrase gender ideology. I think he thinks one thing, And that gets labeled by certain right-wing media personalities and leaders to attack in a transphobic and homophobic way LGBTQ persons. However, I I don't think the Holy Father is making the exact same connection. When he thinks of ideology, he thinks of a whole major system, not the lived experience of individuals. I bring this up because my most recent column for NCR, I talk about there is a Catholic and Christian way for us to think about honoring the dignity and value of all human persons, regardless of their gender identity or expression, and that that should be a fundamental basic reality. And it was amazing how many people were tweeting and and emailing at me, you know, well, the Pope think disagrees with you. You're going against Pope Francis. I'm like, oh, that's curious that you're suddenly interested in anything Pope Francis has to say. So the picking and choosing comes all the time. And I think in this address, Pope Francis calls it out and says, you need to stop this. Yeah, the one last thing I might just add is that in reading, all, I didn't watch the video, so I just read all the tweets that came out about the Pope's words from this past weekend, is that it might be something David, that your daughter is interested in. So if people are struggling with some of the institutional church or even just some of the broader issues about who God is, if you can focus on Jesus and then these the way that Jesus is teaching can be applied today in the many things that face us in our complicated world, I think it's just such a positive depiction of the church really trying in, in action, trying to make the world a better place and live out the teachings of Jesus. I love that suggestion, and I will share those words with my daughter. And for listeners, we will also make sure that you have a link to the full text of the remarks in the show notes. And we'll definitely be coming back and saying more about this, I'm sure. But for right now, we're going to take a quick break. You're listening to The Francis Effect. We'll be back in just a moment. Welcome back to The Francis Effect. I'm Heidi Schlumpf, and I'm here with David Dalt and Dan Horan. Every couple weeks, we get together to discuss news and events through a lens of our shared Catholic faith. Over the past week, former presidential candidate and current Secretary of Transportation, Pete Buttigieg, drew fire from conservatives for taking time off of work to be with his newborn daughter and son. In the United States currently, fathers are not legally guaranteed any right to have paid time off to be with their children. And the attacks on Buttigieg by right-wing pundits like Tucker Carlson have brought the issue into the spotlight once again. Although some companies certainly do offer such benefits to their employees, the practice is far from universal in America. Moreover, even when the benefits are offered and available, A recent Harris poll of 500 working fathers found that workplace culture and other stigmas often pushed parents to opt for less time off than they were due. 
This points to a larger lack of support for parents generally in American working culture, with recent reports from National Public Radio and other sources about child care costs reaching sometimes more than $30,000 per year per child in some areas of the country. The Catholic Church certainly makes support for families a centerpiece of its moral and social teaching, and programs from both the left and the right lay claim to have the goal of supporting working families. But the facts on the ground show that, as a nation and as a culture, we still have a long way to go to reach policies that actually support parents trying to balance work and raising their kids. David, you're a working father. What do you make of all this? Well, I want to say, first of all, that those statistics that you mentioned from NPR and other sources about the costs of childcare are absolutely true. And I know, Heidi, that this affects your family as well. When our kids were very young, it was incredible how much of our family income went to making sure that the kids were in a safe environment and that they that we could basically have them cared for throughout the fullness of our workday because a lot of programs would stop at, you know, two in the afternoon or three in the afternoon and we work until four or five or six and it just becomes an impossible kind of juggling act to continually try and pull this together. The United States is horrible about all of this. You know, we are currently in a process where a lot of states are trying to push women towards forced births in various types of legislation, but with no support at all with regard to what happens once a child is born. And so it's a double whammy. And I I have a lot of thoughts and feelings about this, but I think that you really said it when you said, you know, the Catholic Church makes the family the kind of centerpiece of education and teaching and catechesis. But if we cannot actually have a functional family because of economic reasons, then the entire goal of the church is undermined. And so I really am seeing a lot of forces at tension here in current American policy. It certainly isn't a Christian practice for a country that wants to call itself a Christian nation. And for a country where the Catholic voice is so loud, I don't oftentimes see actual Catholic values being reflected in our family policy. So those are my initial thoughts, but I'd be interested in what you two think is well. Well, I guess I can say that our family dealt with the child care issue by having one parent not work. And not all families, obviously single parent families, can't always afford to do that. And too often, I think our Catholic institutions or our broader social, you know, culture makes the assumption that a middle class, generally white family can choose that option. And often the assumption is that it's the woman who will do that. In our family, it was not. But it's quite a challenge to work on one income, especially one smaller income. It was what we felt was best for our kids, and it was a financial sacrifice we were willing to make as a family. But I just think there are so many broader issues here. And the negativity, I mean, the viciousness about Pete Buttigieg, I think, had something to do um, with him being a non-traditional family, with his kids being adopted, so he and his partner or the spouse, I believe they're married. But it's it, it does go across the board in that in certain industries, especially, parents are looked down upon for taking off time to be with their children. Policies, even in Catholic institutions, are not very generous. And and I understand now as a manager the 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 difficult management issues in trying to deal with 
people who are out, who take off time for parenting leave at work. But I think it's the right thing to do and that we need to, to work towards it, especially in our Catholic institutions to model that. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. And and I think, you know, just to echo what both of you said, I don't actually have a different perspective. I have a different, I mean, I do, but it's an agreement. It's an alignment. I'm trying to think of how to phrase that. My point is, I obviously don't have children. And so I'm very sensitive about and, and aware of what I say and how I say anything that has to do with child rearing and parenting, because it's it's not my place. I think that's something that the church as an institution, the church and its leadership, which is you know, at least hierarchically, all male, celibate, non-parent, you know, there are exceptions, you know, very few exceptions to that rule. But by and large, it's striking that, you know, who's the one from the Catholic perspective that's promulgating, literally promulgating teaching or advice or parameters on what it means to be a good Catholic parent or the ideal you know, Catholic family, to your point earlier, David, I'm just very mindful of that. So I stipulate that from the outset. But to add that, you know, this, like so many other things that we often talk about on the show, it, it boggles my mind sometimes. I mean, it, especially within the Catholic tradition, where we say we're pro-life, where we say the family matters. And I think, you know, not to overemphasize something you mentioned, this qualification a moment ago, Heidi, but I do actually think the fact that Secretary Buttigieg is is gay has a lot to do with the animosity because, you know, that just draws the ire. It draws the um, anything that doesn't fit the kind of platonic form of what a family looks like in a heteronormative context, whether that's a single parent or um whether that is uh, gay or lesbian parents, whether that is different generational, you know, custodial ships. So I think of like grandparents who are the primary caregivers and so forth. These things are, they all come together in a really destructive, really frustrating way. And and as Catholics, I think there's a hypocrisy at play here that, that if you're going to identify as Catholic and you are pro-family and pro-life, then that needs to include all families and all life in this way. And I, I just don't get it. In the past, Dan, you and I have talked about one conception of the definition of the word Catholic, and I believe that the phrase was penetrating the whole and suffused through the whole. And I think about this a lot in the sense of human experience. So Catholicism right now, there's around a billion adherents to Catholicism in the world, which means we're roughly one in every seven people on the planet. When you've got that kind of size, you're going to have a vast amount of different human experiences reflected by this. Catholicism doesn't mean gym class. It doesn't mean everybody jumping in lockstep. It means that we are suffused with a common faith and we point towards a common set of structures. And those aspects in the beautiful variety of human experience are what it means to be Catholic in the world today. Well, and that's a really important point. Cultural context means everything. And so I'm reminded uh, as you're speaking, uh, David, in our conversation here about the animosity toward you know Secretary Pete and, and his spouse and his family is something that Sister Janine Gramick said when she gave a lecture here at St. Mary's College a few weeks back. And, and she made a very simple yet profound point, which is, what leads? Where do we begin? Because in our Catholic tradition, we have these different pools, these buckets of teaching. So in one bucket, we have sexual ethics, right? And in another bucket, we have social ethics. And Sister Janine's point, which I thought was really well put, was that part of the problem and the homophobia or transphobia and some of these other things that tend to dehumanize and reject the dignity and value of human personhood is because people want to lead with or start with or maybe sometimes only view exclusively through the lens of sexual ethics. 
And she says, you know, how much would things change if we started with our social ethics, which speaks to this care for the family, economic equality, rights for workers, you know, just wages, these sorts of things. So she's not saying sexual ethics are unimportant, but she also made this point that you just made that sexual ethics are also deeply enculturated. So that in the United States, for instance, famously, we come from a puritanical culture that even though there's a kind of licentiousness in, you know, in the perception of modern American society, we're actually far more repressed as a community than, let's say, many European countries or other contexts. You know, likewise, there are other sexual taboos and ethical understandings and interpretations and structures of families. I think of numerous African countries and, and other parts of the world where people identify as Catholic, but polygamy is a, a an understood social reality. And the tensions that exist in those contexts, those local churches are different than how, how they exist in Chicago or Boston or, you know, Berlin or something like that. I also am struck when I look at these issues about families by two other social trends that I see going on, or one's political. So one is the Biden administration's attempts through its through its human infrastructure bill to try to put some social safety net benefits in place for families and the resistance that is being met, and many times from these pro-life, pro-family politicians or groups. And so I think that highlights that hypocrisy that you were talking about earlier, that only some families are only certain kinds of pro-life. But I'm also thinking about this, and I've been reading a lot about the, this next social trend as, as the manager in charge at, at NCR, about what's being called the great resignation of so many workers who are leaving their jobs voluntarily and often without other jobs in tow, in part because of these work-life balance struggles. And, and many of them who are doing, who are leaving, at least according to the data I've read, are not even people who are having to juggle kids on top of everything. There, many of them are single people who are just trying to juggle just having, you know, a work, a personal life and some healthy individual life with their work life. And as someone uh, prone to overwork in the pursuit of excellence in journalism, I know that I have to work very hard to carve out time for myself and to not expect too much out of my own employees as well and really believe in the importance of that balance. But it says something about our culture if we're not willing to offer these support systems politically to families that are struggling. And we have people literally in droves quitting their jobs as the only way of finding some sanity. What do you guys think? Well, you know, I'm thinking about a, a, something analogous. I, I work with a number of different organizations, and, and one of them has a fair amount of money in reserve. And yet there's some anxiety among some of the leadership about, well, we we can't tap into that or we we need to make everything balance out on its own rather than you know for this fear of scarcity or something and this fear you know so that there's a kind of a hoarding of things you know I, that comes to mind as i think about our kind of political context which is the people resistant to this sort of assistance the public safety net as it were so that we can be truly pro life and pro family and support the inherent dignity and value of all people and all workers and that children do not have to suffer poverty from the moment they're born. I mean, for heaven's sake, or food scarcity. 
we have the money, we have the resources, we have what's necessary. It's a matter of distribution. And yeah, some people are going to hear that language and they're going to be like, oh, Karl Marx over here, Father Karl Marx. Well, I, I, I don't take that as an insult necessarily because not everything about Marxism is wrong. <laughs> Actually, a lot of the analysis is very correct. I object, of course, to the atheism perhaps of it, but the point that you know distribution of goods is really important and that we operate too much with the scarcity model and the selfishness model, even when it's not, quote unquote, our own stuff, like the funds that are collected through taxes federally and locally, that's not your money. That's not my money. Why are people so upset when people who need assistance, people who need the basic things that are required for basic human flourishing – why withhold that from them? I, I don't understand that, but that's how I see it play out sometimes. And it's so deeply uncatholic. It follows from our previous segment where Pope Francis calls this out as sinful and unjust. Well, there was a word that you used just a moment ago, Dan, that I think is really the centerpiece for me, and that's the word dignity. And Heidi, you were talking about the great resignation. As I watch this kind of unfolding on social media, because sometimes people will post about this and their triumphant exit from a job— Part of what I see oftentimes in those in those reports of quitting and moving on to sometimes no job at all is a recovery of dignity and a refusal to be degraded by a manager or a boss in some way. And I think that's important because the common thread through all of these different stories, whether we're talking about Pete Buttigieg being able to care for his children and not be called out with some frankly sexist and ableist kind of comments from Tucker Carlson, that's a matter of dignity and recognizing his dignity. But also, you know, workers on the front lines, and we've been hearing this throughout the pandemic, are oftentimes not treated with dignity or are treated in ways that makes it seem like people can't recognize their dignity. The common thread through all of this is the fact that we are created imago dei, that we are created in the image of God, that Christ says that he will be with the least of us, and that, that those are the places is where we go to look for dignity. That's what the church teaches. And when we see organizations that have Catholic in their name, or we see organizations that consider themselves Christian, that push against or denigrate human dignity, that's a travesty. And that's a denial of Christ's teaching. It's a, it's a denial for Catholics of, of basic Catholic teaching. For me, this is a central piece of all of this, is that when we're talking about parental leave rights, we're talking about a kind of dignity issue, among other things. David, I, I couldn't agree more, and that seems like a, a good place to conclude this conversation about this, but I'm sure we'll talk about it more in the future. Thanks for listening to The Francis Effect. We'll be back shortly with our final segment. Welcome back to The Francis Effect. I'm Dan Horan, and I'm here with David Dalt and Heidi Schlump. Every couple of weeks, we get together to discuss a variety of topics from a perspective informed by our shared Catholic faith. You all know the routine. The United Nations two-week climate change summit is set to begin on October 31st in Glasgow, Scotland. It is called COP26, that's C-O-P, which stands for Conference of the Parties, and refers to the countries that signed the United Nations Framework Convention on Climate Change Treaty in 1994. This is the 26th summit, postponed a year because of the COVID-19 pandemic. 
It may be fitting that the COP26 will begin on Halloween because the world faces, well, a scary future if the summit's goals are not met. The overarching goal is to meet net zero by mid-century. Now, net zero would mean the amount of greenhouse gas produced and the amount removed from the atmosphere are the same or level out. Scientists have said in order to keep the net zero goal, a 45% overall cut in global greenhouse gas emissions is needed. But without changes, global gas emissions are set to rise by 16%. Many people see COP26 as the most significant climate event since the 2015 Paris Agreement, when all the signatories agreed to keep temperatures below 2 degrees Celsius above pre-industrial levels and to pursue efforts to limit the temperature increase even further to 1.5 degrees Celsius. Now, to meet this 1.5-degree goal, countries must accelerate the phase-out of coal, curtail deforestation, speed up the switch to electric vehicles, and encourage investment in renewables. Already, some are predicting that the 1.5-degree goal is not attainable, but others are advocating strongly for it. That includes an international group of world religious leaders, including Pope Francis, who signed an urgent appeal to COP26 participants on October 4th, that's right, the Feast of St. Francis of Assisi. The faith leaders called the climate crisis a grave threat and urged those in Glasgow to, quote, take speedy, responsible, and shared action to safeguard, restore, and heal our wounded humanity and the home entrusted to our stewardship, end quote. Although Pope Francis had originally planned to be at the summit, earlier this month, the Vatican announced that the Holy See's delegation would be led by Secretary of State Cardinal Pietro Perolin, which means the Pope would not be attending, though it's possible he may send a video message. Heidi, NCR has long covered the intersection of faith and environmental justice. How big is this upcoming meeting and why should Catholics care about it? It is huge, of course, because the very future of our planet depends on it. And Catholics need to care about that, as we've said in these previous segments today, because it is really, I believe, the justice issue of our time. I'll give a short plug here for Earthbeat, which is uh, NCR's publication that uh, looks at the intersection of environmental justice and faith. You can go to earthbeat.org. And our environmental correspondent, Brian Rowey, who's been covering this beat for almost a decade and I think knows more than maybe anybody in the country about the issues of environmental justice and faith in the Catholic Church. He will be attending the first week of COP26 in Glasgow and covering it from there for us. So definitely go to EarthBeat to to look for more coverage of COP26 when it starts. Brian wrote a piece last Friday, and we can share it in our show notes, titled Five Reasons Catholics Should Care About the COP26 Climate Summit. And, you know, among the reasons he cites is that this is part of our faith and that Pope Francis and other religious leaders have really made this an important justice issue, especially because of the way it affects the poor. So if we have a preferential option for the poor, and as you mentioned previously, David, uh, we care about the dignity of all people, Catholic social teaching is really on the table here at this meeting. We have to look at the injustice of climate change. It's going to affect all of us eventually, and especially our children and grandchildren, but it affects the marginalized the most. I think when I look at all the numbers involved in the goals, you know, how many degrees and how how much percentage do we need to cut, the gist of it is that we cannot any longer be talking about long-term goals. We have to get moving now. And countries too often, I think, set goals and then there's no real 
teeth to make them reach them. And we will have an editorial coming out in NCR this week or early next week where we basically say Catholics in the United States, whether it's dioceses or organizations or parishes, need to just start doing things. Those four goals that were listed, deforestation, move to electric vehicles, cutting emissions, those are things that parishes and dioceses as property owners could be working on right away. I don't think we can afford to put this off any longer, and it's so intricately connected to our faith that I hope Catholics will see it for the important meeting that it is. You know, when I when I have a really important deadline sometimes or a project that I need to do that I'm not feeling particularly motivated about or particularly interested in or it seems too daunting, I find myself all of a sudden very interested in cleaning bathrooms and kitchens and that kind of thing. I, I don't know if anyone else has that experience, but I think that's what's happening sometimes even in the Catholic Church and, and in different populations, Catholics and non-Catholics alike around this. And I bring that up, Heidi, because you know, I couldn't agree with you more that that climate change is the most important issue. In fact, I wrote a column two years ago, uh, September of 2019, where I said exactly that. Climate change is the most important life issue today is the headline. And I just find myself going back to Pope Francis's address where he has no more cares to give, as we say. I, I do, too. I mean, I, I don't have any patience personally for People who identify as pro-life and are obsessed about one or two or, you know, particular issues with a particular population of individuals and not look at the bigger structural issue. As I say in that column and I've said in many lectures, if we do not have a habitable planet, if we do not have – if we do not address this concern, then all the advocacy people – put their efforts behind in terms of this niche issue or that niche issue or this particular community or that particular community is going to be for nothing because no one's going to be able to live here. And so I'm not saying that abortion is unimportant. I'm not saying that euthanasia is unimportant. I'm not saying capital punishment is, is unimportant. I think these are all important issues. My point is you cannot deny the urgency of global climate change. And I like what you're saying there, Heidi, about we need to just do something, just start, just something. I'm thinking about what has been said earlier in the conversation about when we talk about organizations that have large resources, there is a scarcity mindset that sometimes can take them over. And they say, well, we, you know, we want to make sure that we're not touching the endowment or we're not touching the nest egg. And, you know, at times when someone is feeling great anxiety, like you said, and I do this too, you know, they start to clean the house or do something else. And when I look at, you know, the bishops and the church doing things like focusing on what I take to be less important issues than the environment, the puritanical issues of the church that we've talked about, I see the kind of coming together of, of these worst impulses of, you know, the resources are there and the social capital is there, but we're going to focus on this instead of on the big problem. This is a time to really take that jug of spike nard and spill it out. We need to be spending all our social capital, all our resources to try and get the church, the billion adherent church, to help with this problem. That becomes the real focal point for me is exactly what you're saying. We've got a deadline. It's a very clear deadline, and it's a deadly deadline, but we're distracting ourselves to death to not reach it. We're trying to distract ourselves from the reality that's there, and it's going to have consequences. The church needs to step in. Well, guilty as charged over here as somebody who likes to rearrange her sock drawer when I have big deadlines due. 
I have a very organized sock drawer though. <laughs> but and, and that's a good analogy, I think, for something that might be human nature. But the church is called to do better. And some of the ideas that the editors at NCR brainstormed in the writing of our editorial was to say, we own a lot of buildings that have parking lots that are not being used many days of the week. And why can't we be building you know, solar panel, you know, things that you can park under in our parking lots? Why do we not have charging stations in our parking lots? Why do we not, if we give a car allowances to many of our employees, meaning the uh, priests who get car allowances, why can't they be dependent on having electric or at least hybrid vehicle? It just seems like the church could really be leading by example here. And of course, we as individuals could be doing things as well. But I'd like to see the strong words that we had from the Pope over the weekend to the social movements and the social poets to also be heard and digested and then put into practice in ways that then would inspire other folks. The reality is that at the international level, when we look at COP26, where we're going to have all of these countries, there, it, this is a very complex conversation and not as easily you know, accomplished. But I think that we as Catholics have a unique situation in that our universal church is also a country and so is able to be represented at that meeting. And I'm hoping that the Pope's presence will be there, even though he might not physically bodily be there. Yeah, I think that's such an important point. And I like the questions that are being raised about the land that we have, the resources that we have collectively, because they are shared, right? They don't belong to any one person. They don't belong to the pastor himself or to, to the, you know, the diocese in a legal sense, but they are belong to the church, which is the, the body of Christ, the baptized. So this is one way we can put the stuff that we say we believe in. Again, life, you know, the family, we just talked about the family and the importance of the family. Well, Pope Francis, drawing again on the wisdom of John Paul II, in Laudato Si, talks about intergenerational justice and solidarity. So what kind of world are we leaving to the current children, to their children, to two or three generations down the road? It's not that far from now that things are looking really bad. And, you know, a kid born today who might live 80 years is going to be far beyond these dates that we keep talking about right now. It may not be in our three lifetimes where we see everything in a kind of Mad Max way, but... Also, it could. <laughs> you know, there's that reality, too. Things are grim. And I appreciated, you know, the reference to Halloween and that this conference begins on Halloween. I mean, there should be nothing scarier. And yet, no, not, not a lot of people seem animated about it. We've also got a, a kind of dueling narratives problem here because oftentimes, you know, when I look out at wider Christianity, but also sometimes when I look at the bishops themselves, I see a kind of overture to macho Christianity and a kind of domination Christianity, a dominionist sort of looking at the resources of the world saying it's ours to master and God is going to be all in all. And, you know, then I come and, and my Franciscan friends come and there's a very different narrative there about care for the world and working with nature and work, working with the world that we have been gifted with. And I wonder how we resolve those dueling narratives, how, because they're both very present in our Catholic Church right now. Oh, I have a lot to say about this. I, I mean, I'll just say that it's similar to what we talked about a moment ago in the last segment, or I guess two segments ago, about the picking and choosing what people want to recognize as authoritative or what they want to believe. I think we see a parallel around climate change or about theologies of creation that are 
comparable. It's similar to the dynamics that play out in the U.S. context around the reality of structural racism, the resistance to the 1619 Project. Yeah, no articulation is ever 100% perfect, but the basic fundamental truths that are presented in there are, in fact, reality. <laughs> you know, 400 years of, of enslavement and injustice that is deployed against minoritized people. A lot of folks just don't want to hear that. Let's, you know, people, let's move on. I don't want, you know, that's back then. Let's not dwell on it, blah, blah, blah. Similarly here, it's like people, my response is, first of all, to your point, David, the dominion model of creation is something that uh, Pope Francis explicitly rejects in paragraph 64 of Laudato Si. That is not, he says explicitly, that is not a Catholic interpretation of Genesis. So people who maintain that manifest destiny, that dominion subduing kind of attitude as a sense of domineering and dominance, that's not Catholic. So you can't be Catholic and maintain that, A. B, I think you go to the natural sciences and you actually take a deep look at sacred scripture. I mean, <laughs> I mean, I wrote a whole book about this and it was the subject of my dissertation as well. So, I mean, I have a lot of resources I could point to. I'm not going to stay on my soapbox too long here in the segment. But to simply say that the tradition, scripture, science, all these things converge together to show that it's not just a theory. We are part of creation too. We are creation too. We are interdependent. None of us can sustain ourselves. As St. Francis and Pope Francis then picks up, calls this planet our sister mother earth. It, it is not cutesy, touchy-feely romantic. It's the fact that everything that it shares this common home is what is necessary for us to live. And we're just part of this big family of creation that is dependent on one another. People, I just feel like people need to get their heads out of their you-know-whats <laughs> and pay attention to this. You know, every time you take a, a, a breath, Think of the plant life that is producing that oxygen and taking your poisonous carbon dioxide out of the atmosphere. Every time you, you eat a salad or eat some meat or something, think about the life that died to make that possible so that you can live. I mean, it sounds cutesy or poetic, but it's true. So David, that's my answer, as brief as I can make it, because I could go on forever and ever about this. But it drives me nuts because people they're like, oh, well, this is a fantasy land. The fantasy land is the sense that we are outside of creation, that we're we're individuals, that manifest destiny is real, and that we can subdue or control the natural environment. We are part of the natural environment, period. Well, in the dueling narratives issue, I do think that there is a tendency in human nature, especially during scary times, to want to fall back into the idea that we can control things, whether it's our planet or you know our own personal situations. And so I, I have some empathy for that as a, a recovering control freak myself. But it's precisely my faith and my spirituality that help me with those issues to recognize that I'm not in control. And, you know, one of the sources of spiritual help to me have been so many of the words and actions of religious women who I think have really taken the uh, Catholic teaching to heart and are living it out both in their like individual spiritualities, but then corporately as, as as congregations of women religious. So we have so many resources from you know our history to Pope Francis and Laudato Si to women religious and other Catholics really living out their faith on the ground around these issues of environmental justice. That I'm gonna I'm gonna maybe end us on on a somewhat hopeful note that I'm thinking that the voices of faith and, and in our faith specifically might have some effect these in, during this two-week-long meeting and, and help our world to move along towards something that could be uh, more helpful towards meeting some of those goals. Lots, it would require a lot of prayer, I think, as well. So we'll be doing that. 
And Heidi, I agree. I think that's a fantastic place to conclude our conversation today. Thank you so much, both of you, for being part of this conversation. And all of you listeners, we hope that you'll continue to be praying about this as well, because these are important issues and your faith makes a difference. So thank you for being a part of this conversation and this journey with us. We'll be back in a couple of weeks. On behalf of Father Dan and Heidi, I'm David Dalt, and you've been listening to The Francis Effect. We'll be back with you soon. The Francis Effect is produced by Sandberg Media LLC and is recorded remotely in Chicago, Illinois and South Bend, Indiana. It's edited by me at the William Adams Studios in Hyde Park on Chicago's beautiful South Side. The opinions of this program are our own and do not reflect the positions of any organizations with which we may be affiliated. We want to give a shout out to the Salt and Light Catholic Media Foundation. They are not affiliated with our program, but they did give us their kind permission to use the name The Francis Effect, and we appreciate it very much. Please check out their good work at slmedia.org. This show is made possible in part by our Patreon supporters, and if you'd like to join them, please go to patreon.com slash francisfxpod. We appreciate it very much. Please follow us on Twitter and Facebook. Both of those are at francisfxpod, and our website is also francisfxpod.com. Please tell your friends about the show, and if you're here for the first time, we have seasons and seasons of episodes that you can go back to and listen to for your heart's content. We're so glad that you're here. Heidi and Father Daniel and I will be back in about two weeks. We're looking forward to being with you then. Thank you again for listening.